Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world. And now it is a time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point. It is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making. A very good morning to you and welcome to this week's installment of your governance uh, here at 101.9 High FM. Yours truly is Nimrodin I hope we all have reflective moments uh, regarding the June month as we commemorate for the 7th anniversary of the June 16th Soviet uprising and other related uprisings. I mean, it's common cause that when it happened, it ended up tragically with hundreds of people who were brutally killed. And I think since uh, we are still celebrating or commemorating Youth Month, it is quite important that we urgently address the plight of youth unemployment as, in my view, represent arbitrage on our next. As you know by now, I'm an advocate of hand up and not hand out. Uh, as a matter of principle, I love the culture of handouts as it has the propensity to create a sense of entitlement while stripping someone's dignity. Having said that, I recognize that I'm privileged and my principle certainly won't fly at the face of object poverty, which has become pandemic. It is on that basis that I advocate for charity justice, especially in the winter, as most people are desperately in need of nourishment to keep them all. So let's continue donating food, clothes and blankets as those who need them can certainly do with your generosity, which in my view will not go unnoticed. Before we get into the gist of today's show, let me dispense with the words of gratitude to my colleagues here. On that note, Busma Singer, thank you very much. In the same vein, Harris Gale, thank you as well for helping to navigate the show seamlessly and beautifully. And given the nature of our impending conversation, I implore you, the beloved listener, to weigh in as I share your thoughts. Well, by sharing your thoughts uh, on any of the previous conversation, let alone the one at hand, uh, our SMS line, as you know, is 34519. While I am breathless with anticipation to engage my island scholar and golfer here, allow me to quickly share my observations regarding an article with the so on Daily Investor regarding the qualification of world city mayors. Can you believe it? World city mayors. Where are we in the broader scheme of things? The mayor of Beijing has a PhD. The mayor of Mexico has a master's. The mayor of uh, New York has master's. The mayor of city of Cape Town has master's. The mayor of Singapore has master's. The mayor of London has mastered. The mayor of Sydney has a degree. Tokyo mayor has a degree. And last but certainly least, own governor Guananda with a metric. This is a man that has been entrusted with running a city worth 80.9 billion rands including 7.6 billion rand capital expenditure budget. What does I say to you? I mean, we don't even know his uh, business pedigree. We don't know how many business he had managed. But at that grand scale, he's the least qualified mayor. What does it mean about our standards as South Africans? Have we dropped our standards so badly? Or do we even, even have standards? Anyway, these are my thoughts. And I thought I just could share with you personally. <laughs> you might have a different view 
on that excruciating and exasperating point, uh, let me welcome my guest, Ellen McCorkey, who's a CEO at the South African Chamber of Commerce and Industry, to share with us his insights from the press release on the president's historic visit to Kremlin and Kiev about a week or so ago. Ellen, good morning and welcome to Beyond Governance. Good morning, um, Brad, and uh, good morning to your listeners as well. Absolutely. First and foremost, let me just pick your brains on the broad spectrum of qualification that I've alluded to, um, you know, from from the daily investor. What's your take on that that own mayor of city of Johannesburg, who's leading the world class city in Africa, having metric and the rest of his counterpart with PhDs to masters degrees. Well, I think that it always depends, you know, the issue of training and development of individuals or the, rather, let me put it this way, the idea of insisting on a meritocracy is no doubt something that is very important, but it doesn't necessarily mean that someone with a metric cannot perform, nor does it necessarily mean that someone with the higher, let's say, maybe qualifications that they may have will do better. I mean, South Africa is a typical example. Uh, it's very difficult to tell. Even if we look at, say, maybe national politics or we look at national government, whether in fact, because if you look at it, in all fairness, with all the poor performance, a huge majority of those people are actually very highly qualified from an academic point of view. So qualification isn't just academic, but qualification means a level of competence and skill, experience, performance, track record, and that all that has got to go with training and development, all of that has got to go with performance management, all of that has got to go with the, the right culture and the skills and the right values of any organization that you, you work for. So I wouldn't necessarily cast aspersions on anyone because I have a degree or degrees and someone else who does not, because it does happen in quite a number of environments where people can really seriously perform without the actual academic qualifications. It also happens where people with high, very high academic qualifications, I mean, you can see the the cabinet of South Africa is full of people who have lots of lots of degrees. The public sector is full of people who have doctorates, and yet the performance is actually not there. I think that it's all about when we say qualifications, it goes beyond the idea that you've got a degree. It goes into the measurement of competence and skills. Yes, putting academic qualifications is part of that, but it's not the only part. And it doesn't necessarily, as a variable, as a single variable, it does not necessarily determine performance or failure. It's just that you just need to make sure that you've hired the right people. You you look at things like ESCOM, for instance, you'll find that the majority of people that have actually been hired there, serious people, you know, engineers, you know, even if those who are not engineers, uh, high academic type qualifications, but they all bomb out because it's not only the only single variable. I could not agree with you more on that particular score that obviously we need to have a wider, I like a sense of confidence uh, and a wider view and have all sorts of critical ingredients or variables uh, without necessarily casting aspersion with regards to the performance of this particular individual. We're going to have to wait, obviously, wish him luck, but yeah, I've got my view. It's only time will tell. But as we proceed, and I was quite intrigued by the press release that your organization have put uh, forward regarding the uh, uh, diplomacy uh, or diplomatic calls that the president took to Ukraine. Um, first and foremost, I mean, I, I think 
it was laudable from where you're sitting to come and try to try and give us that particular view. What was your overall sentiments regarding that particular gesture? Well, I think that the first thing that we were really addressing is that it's important for South Africa to continue to play a role in global affairs. And yet uh, people seem to be confusing things in that just because you have load shedding, you dare not go to London, talk to the British, and maybe if they are still fighting with the Irish, uh, that there should be peace. Those two things are actually not related. So to the extent that you are one of many instruments or cogs that can have some kind of influence, you know, South Africa is part of BRICS, Russia is part of BRICS. To that extent, there is some kind of a relationship. If this means, therefore, you have the relationship and you believe that you can go there and use your influence to persuade people to lay down arms, you should do that. This all has been devastating, not only to the Ukraine, not only to Europe, but also to us as Africans in the context of once you have a Europe that is unstable and Europe is one of the bigger markets and also a much bigger potential market going into the future. Because whilst we're doing a bit in terms of Western Europe, in that Eastern Europe block, we're not actually doing as much business as we potentially can. So it's one of the latent potential markets for South Africa to try and export uh, uh, goods and build economic relations in that particular environment. Now, of course, this war has dragged Western Europe itself into that, given the environment of sanctions, given the environment of threats, given the environment that a lot of the economies now that they are struggling themselves with energy and the crisis that happens in that particular area, and the possibility of dragging all of them into that war, because any time a mistake can actually happen, and the whole of NATO can get involved in that war because of Article uh, 5 of the NATO agreement that talks about an attack on one is actually an attack on all. Now, of course, Russia is a country that has the the largest uh, arsenal of um, nuclear weapons, and you and I should appreciate that you do not want to see someone with nuclear weapons being pushed to the corner. You do not want a country like that getting involved in a nuclear conflagration because the consequences for the whole world would be much more devastating. So I think that that is actually the context. So South Africa is struggling. Africa is struggling, as the president did indicate. Uh, the price of grains has gone up because obviously those imports we used to get from places like Ukraine are no longer as consistent uh, as they are. The issues around the Black Sea, very important issue in terms of international trade, logistics, infrastructure and value chains. And of course, uh, the price of energy uh, has gone up because of that particular uh, situation in uh, between Russia and the Ukraine. So there is no way that South Africa should fold its arms, sit down and do nothing about it. So that's been a very key consideration in terms of why we thought this is the problem. Of course, the other element, uh, we can't deny that. If you look at those 10-point plans that the President Ramaphosa put on the table with both Mr. Zelensky and uh, Mr. Putin. They were very well thought out in our view, given the fact that, if you recall, South Africa was struggling from a media perception point of view with three big items. One of those items was the accusation that South Africa is siding with Russia. The other accusation, uh, which has yet to be proven, was that South Africa has allegedly sold arms to the Russian Federation, you know, the Lady R ship that was here that docked in Cape Town, in Simon's Town, allegedly uh, came to pick up arms. And this is uh, obviously a very serious allegation made 
by the U.S. Ambassador to South Africa, Mr. Projeti. And then you, you had the other uh, imminent or potential threat about AGOA, and then um, the Americans are unhappy with South Africa, and sanctions may be imposed on us. And, you know, that noise was there before the trip to Kiev and to St. Petersburg, without any doubt. I think that if you are observers uh, of media and media perceptions, you will notice with interest that as soon as Ramaphosa went and came back from Russia, that whole noise around that particular perception at least significantly died down. So to that extent alone, I think that he succeeded. Because if you look at those 10-point plans, there were 10-point plans that Zelensky would like to put to Russia as well. Because it talks about uh, a ceasefire, it talks about de-escalation, it talks about you know the return of political prisoners, it talks about the return of the children that were removed by Russia from the Ukraine ostensibly to protect them from the war. But fundamentally, one of the reasons why the ICC issued a warrant of arrest. So if you look at South Africa in terms of did South Africa gain anything from this trip that the president took to Eastern Europe, I would think that from a media perception point of view that South Africa was struggling to make sense, explaining its own neutral stance, whilst at the same time being obviously dragged into, no, you're friends with Russia, you know, your, your influence with Russia, sorry, not your influence, your coziness to Russia is going to cause a problem for South Africa. I think that the president certainly did blow that whole theory out of the water by going there, precisely because Mr. Putin himself rejected quite a number of the points that were put on the table uh, by saying that uh, the African leaders were, you know, were naive to even put some of those points on the table because his understanding on this side was very different in terms of what was actually going on, including the fact that there had been a peace agreement signed and hosted by Turkey, that in his accusation, he accused uh, Kiev of reneging on that particular agreement. So I think that overall, uh, you can't say that just because we criticize the government and the president all the time on the failures that do take place, then it must be a criticism by principle. I mean, we're not an opposition party. We're just a business organization where things are being done correctly. We must actually say we commend the president. Where things are not being done correctly, we must criticize fairly and justifiably when we can. Absolutely. We're going to take a break on that particular note. We'll come back after very interesting insights that I want to probe a little bit more. Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world. And now it is a time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point, it is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making. Welcome back. This is Beyond Governance on this glorious Shilly morning, I'm in company of Alan McCorkle, the CEO at the South African Chamber of Commerce and Industry. He's giving us insights from their press release relating to, pre- to the president's historic visit to Kremlin and Kiev. Before we went to that break, I mean, two issues that, that came out for me um, is the fact that the from the media point of view, South Africa with the president has somehow ameliorated the onslaught Rather, the perception that South Africa was cozy to Russia and because of a whole lot of assumptions or other accusations 
regarding its position in relation to Russia or Russian war and also in relation to supposedly or accusation around the arms that were sold to Russia. So his view is that South Africa seems to have done well from that particular point in that that media hype um, sort of died down after the, that particular uh, visit by the president. The other critical issue that I'm picking up from Helen is the fact that um, South Africa and African leaders who went um, to, to, to both countries were not naive necessarily, but had to take a stand, one in trying to elevate the posture of African leaders given the global significance of the Russian and Ukrainian war on the African continent. He made reference to issues around the value chain in the Black Sea. He made reference to grain uh, that has gone up. He made reference to a number of critical issues that delimitating the growth of African economy which was a very important issue that he had brought to attention. But as we go a little bit deeper, Alan, one, it is one thing that we recognize that media's perception, global media perception regarding the, the president has sort of subsided. How significant is that posture? And can we sustain that posture? Because we live in an era of perceptions that can be reality. Well, I think that it's a it's a significant posture to take. Uh, you must also recall that there were, though, I think, including uh, Senator Kuhn, there were about four senators at the same time who had written a letter to the U.S. State Department and the White House complaining about South Africa and why South Africa should actually be excluded from AGOA, the Africa Growth Opportunities Act, opportunities to export certain categories of goods into the United States duty-free. And I think that if you'll notice that that noise also died down a little bit from the, the initiative of the 10-point plan that, that Mr. Ramaphosa put through to Mr. Putin and the engagement that actually took place. Of course, you have to sustain that because peace is not something that you can do over over a weekend. You know, it was just a weekend trip. And then people don't actually appreciate the fact that both Mr. Zelensky and Mr. Putin found time, notwithstanding whatever it is that they are busy with fighting, they found time to actually meet with them. That in itself is a sign of respect. That in itself is a sign of achievement because, you know, for as long as foes and people who are engaged in conflict still have time to meet you. Because remember, just because they are meeting you, it does not mean they are not talking to each other. The mm-hmm. sign that they are talking to you, it means they are talking to each other via you. They are not able to talk to each other directly, but the fact that they are able to sit down and put their grievances across to you, both of them means they both respect you and they know what you are going to do, that information. You are going to actually be a conduit to send that information to the other party. So if you don't go and talk to someone when you don't know, what are you going to do with my information? You talk to someone when you don't. I know I'm talking to I'm Zelensky. I'm talking to Cyril Ramaphosa right now. I know that I'm actually not talking to him. I know that I'm talking to the other guy. When I, the, I meet the other guy, the other guy knows that I'm talking to Ramaphosa because I know this information is going to go to, and, and everything was done, obviously, openly. Global media was actually in, allowed to record the event itself. So from that point of view, of course, South Africa needs to sustain its engagement. You don't do this type of thing. And it's one of the things that President Ramaphosa just certainly put on the table to say that he's hoping for future engagement and let the engagements continue. It's not like this is the first time there's been a war in the world. And many of the wars, they take a while to put together the peace. You know, the, the war here in South Africa, 
the last big war, 1899, the second Anglo Boer War, which now people call the South African War. You know, it took place 1899 and, you know, 1901, there was peace. But, you know, even that peace, the Treaty of Ferenaheng, it didn't take a weekend. It took a number of months with both sides, uh, because as you recall, it was the so-called South African Republic or the old Transvaal Republic on one side with the Orange Free State and then on the other side with the British. So it took a while to get uh, that uh, going. And, and, and there have been many, many treaties in the world that have done that. You know, Europe was plunged into a 30 war, the Augsburg Wars around 1515, you know. 30 years, they started to talk peace at the Treaty of Westphalia took a number of months for that thing to be put to bed. So it's not the first time. You can't have South Africa going to Russia and suddenly over the weekend uh, and then on Monday uh, the peace has actually happened. So those people who are looking for that kind of success are being silly to think that success can take place in that. Uh, similarly, we made that point that those people who are raising an issue around rents and cause them and come on can't be raising an issue on, you know, did you guys travel by train? How much was the train ticket to go to Kiev? What are you saying now? You know, this is very silly. This is what talking about a very big serious problem here. And there's no cost that you can ever put to it. I was also intrigued by your elevation of that particular point in terms of some of the criticisms which were leveled against President Tripp was that you reckon it was reduced to rent and cents. You're clearly saying there's no substance in that level of scrutiny because the, the, those kind of trip, you have to weigh them against the overall objectives. Yeah. Are we South Africans, what is your sense of the position on principal issues, not so much about politics, because at some point you have to elevate the principle of international engagement to try and remedy the misperception about the continent and those misperception about the continent, about the continent leadership has a price. What is wrong with that narrative of trying to elevate our conversation, particularly in the context of chaos that we're seeing? The inner, I'm struggling in my mind, whether it's just politics or we don't have a sense of cohesion in terms of key principles which can be defined as non-negotiable. Yeah, no, you're quite correct. I think that, look, we can't deny the fact that there are people who, would come from the point of view that they don't want this war to end. And some people are just parrot fashioning certain political persuasions around why should the war end? Because maybe this is an opportunity for us to fight to the bitter end to destroy the enemy. And of course, if you're persuaded like that, you're not doing your own evaluation and analysis of the situation. You then try and, and invalidate uh, the mission. You delegitimize the mission. Because you are now bringing in things like, why did you ride in a first-class coach of a train instead of riding in the third-class coach? Uh, you know, what is that? So you are going to do that type of thing. So I think that we have to be very conscious of the fact that just a small little movement in the price of oil, if it's, it's if, if the contribution to the deterioration of the price is caused by the conflict, it would be far more costly to our economy than how much Mr. Ramaphosa spent in chartering a flight to Kiev and to Russia and getting on a train to go there and how many people it took because you can't go, go into a war zone. You can't be complaining why the media is there. You need the media to be there. It's part of the diplomatic mission. You can't be complaining about why so many security personnel in South, South Africa. South Africa agreed we will provide security for all the other uh, presidents. Well, it would be a nightmare to have all these presidents, or seven people or so, bringing their own security details. South Africa decided to step forward and say, well, leading will bring a protection for everybody else. Then so be it. You know, we must be prepared to take that cost because it's a very, very, very minimal amount 
of money in the context, of course, of what can be achieved and what we are trying. As I said earlier on, your, your price of grain is now up. The price of gas is actually up. You've now closed a lot of your markets because when start big countries in Europe start to struggle with recessions, they stop buying from us because they are fighting for their own survival or back home where they are, unemployment starts to rise, inflation goes up. You know, the business cycle is not uh, very uh, positive for them. So why am I buying all these minerals from South Africa or agri products from South Africa in that particular context? Because my own economy is going down. So it's very important. So overall, I think that you can never put a cost to it because the cost of the war is much more higher. I couldn't agree with you more on that note. Let's have a break and come back in a second just to check some of these issues uh, further. Beyond Governance, making sense of doing business in South Africa, is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world. And now it is the time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point, it is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making. Welcome back. This is Beyond Governance. I'm joined by Ellen Cookins, an executive at the South African Chamber of Commerce and Industry, giving us insights regarding the trip which was undertaken by the president alongside with his African counterpart to Russia and Kiev to try and remedy the war that is uh, ensuing in that particular part of the continent. Before we took that break, Ellen was giving us view regarding, you know, some of the detractors of that particular trip initiative, suggesting that it cannot be viewed in a random sense for there's a bigger picture out there. I mean, what was salient in, in his observation is the fact that the price of oil, if the trip would make a significant contribution towards stabilizing the price of oil, even if it's for the, for, for the month, you know, we you and I are likely to benefit. And we, there are a lot of issues that goes, um, you know, trying to unblock the value chain along the Black Sea. So these are some of the very interesting insights that we begin to hear and really appreciate and recognize the fact that we should not be in a position to single out one variable that literally is insignificant given the global context of issues which we are confronted with. So this is his view, which I can resonate with, um, given the fact that we, we all know energy prices have gone up astronomically, oil prices have gone astronomically, grain prices have gone up astronomically. So we are literally got our back against the wall, purely because, amongst other variables, that war, if the war could be somehow de-escalated as part of the president 10-point presentation to both presidents, we are likely to breathe a sound of relief in a continent point of view. The reason why I'm raising these issues, well, is because we have to look at them in a broader context of the African Intercontinental Free Trade Agreement, which, in my view, has, you know, the war has literally struck a huge blow. But in the same vein, it has really given us an opportunity to begin to invest on some of the inputs. Agriculture is an example. I mean, the amount of grain that we imported from Europe, it is insane. And I've picked up from one of the media articles, the president of Rwanda uh, was like, you know, he has begun to commission 
set of agricultural initiative to ensure that Rwanda is become self-reliant. And those kind of issues which have been picked up in the uh, continental free trade agreement are quite pertinent. Can I just perhaps maybe try and, and link this mission to that broader agenda of the UN, of the African Union, to be more precise, in a way to trying to bring self-reliance of the continent, because without economic sustainability of the continent, the continent will always play second fiddle in the broader geopolitical space. Your take on that? Well, yeah, I think that uh, these things are important. I mean, it's important to stabilize markets uh, wherever they are all over the world. Your neighbors, as well as the rest of the continent, to be in a position to, to support their economies as things intertwined. There's an interconnectedness of these uh, economies from a logistics point of view. You know, the seas must be free. No one must be worried about what's going on. Where when you start having things like sanctions, for instance, it creates a disruption whether you like it or you don't, you know, because then I can sell to this one, I can sell to that one. All those are negative elements that contribute to economic conditions that are poor. So you want to open them up. You want to make sure that you can then continue to trade easily with anyone in Europe and you want to trade easily with anyone in Africa. To that extent, yes, we have to continue to support the idea around the free trade agreement in Africa, even though in fence stage. And I don't think that we're tooling up well yet as South Africans to try and take advantage uh, thereof because we are not yet ready in many categories of things that we possibly can do to drive. And I think that it's okay for Paul Kagame in Rwanda to begin a few initiatives because he's one of the more important and key leaders of the African continent uh, today. So we do need to have proper initiatives because we need to tool up as South Africans. We need to fix us. Uh, so that we're ready to deal with the outside. can continue to run the economy the way we are, which is largely based on purely producing primary things, as in minerals and agri, and then exporting them to the United States. So, I mean, I know you talk about Africa, but even when you talk about this agor, if you look at the categories of goods, you'll find that almost 65 70% of the things that we're selling via agor, not all exports to the United States are covered by agor, but if you look at the category of agor, you'll then find a lot of things there that are not necessarily things that we are manufacturing or that come from industry per se, but were actually things that were digging from the ground the way they are, and then we simply sell uh, to other people. So there's a big opportunity in terms of what we can do to build a manufacturing, industrializing type economy that can then create the jobs that are needed. I couldn't agree with you more there, Alan, because... When you look at um, even, you know, South Africa during the apartheid era, sanctions that were imposed to, to South Africa at the time gave the then uh, National Party an opportunity to look inwardly and begin to create some level of self-sufficiency. For example, AMSCO was the byproduct of sanction, which was seen as an opportunity by the National Party uh, the likes of Soto, which has become such a, a global entity, was a byproduct of inward looking by the National Party at the time. So the list goes on and on. I mean, even in ESCOM at some point, it is it was a flagship project which uh, had to be propelled by the National Party back at the time, purely because this, the country was being you know had had enormous sanction. So my point is that there are opportunities which forces. In the context of the wars, there are opportunities that 
ordinarily nation nations would not would not have the guts or would not have the same speed in trying to bring those kind of initiatives uh, uh, afloat. Your your take on that? Are we maximizing on this, yeah. or is something that's maybe at your level with other captains of industry and government? That, are we seeing opportunities here? Well, that is very true. I mean, yes, the opportunities are certainly there, but we don't yet have an enabling environment for many of those people to start those businesses. You know, a lot of the businesses that need to be started are not necessarily going to be started by the existing big businesses. In other words, they're not necessarily going to come from expansion opportunities from the existing businesses that are there. I did raise first the problem of South Africa's economy largely being the primary uh, industry sector, such as in mining, minerals, and and agri uh, environments. And we're not doing a lot of manufacturing and certainly the space around the creation of new business environments, uh, business opportunities, is not something that has such a high enabling environment. The SME sector is struggling a lot in South Africa due to the fact that I think that the government is probably not clear in its intent in terms of what it is trying to do. Because if you look, and I'm not saying that you can compare the two things, but if you look at the amount of money being spent in social services, say, for instance, by way of social grants, and then you compare that with the amount of money that the government itself is investing in promoting the startup of new businesses and the financing of new businesses, you'll find that there's a huge skew, you know, because you, you don't actually see why that would be the case. So the amount of money that should be spent in SME development, because that's how you drive an economy. If you look at all the people that we tend to compare ourselves with in terms of countries that have moved their economies from developing economies to developed economies, you know, countries like uh, Japan, of course, you know, uh, Taiwan, uh, South Korea, you know, uh, old Hong Kong, Singapore, you know, Russia, Israel, and Australia, the bulk of the uh, companies that have actually moved those economies significantly higher, even today, the majority of the businesses in those environments are the SME family and family-owned businesses. It's not the big listed entities that are driving those economies. To that extent, I think that South Africa's mistake is to want to rely. Even the president would prefer to speak more to people who are maybe, say, for instance, within the PLSA, the Business Leadership South Africa, who are running the big corporations that are listed in the JSC. The JSC only has probably around 300 companies that are listed. But the majority of South African companies are not actually JSE listed. And that's where you need more of the focus on the development. But if you look at the the social construct in terms of uh, when the president says, I've consulted business, he's not actually talking about the real business of South Africa. He's talking about, I spoke to a few business leaders who are actually vocal, who are actively engaging with the government. But they are just a minority and so that's why policy, therefore, will follow those who are actually influential. So if you talk to big business leaders who tell you that small businesses might and rest when it comes rights and when it comes to talking how do we design policy, how much money we're going to fund in ABCD, only their voice would be heard more because those are the people that will rock up at many of the business meetings that the president would have. And if you look at the composition of those particular uh, delegations. You're not going to find a very big voice for the small business people that are there because the big guys will dominate that particular discussion. And I think that that's a mistake that the government is actually still making. The funding is also another aspect. The development of skills and competencies for people to be able to engage in business and to know what they are doing when they are there, that's not really working. I think that the CIFARs and the CITARs of this world are trying 
but they tend to want to focus too much on the micro sector, which is not necessarily the issue here. The issue is how do you develop the existing small medium enterprises so that they get to be big, so that they get to really become bigger businesses. So that middle sector, as we speak in South Africa today, no one is actually looking after it from the government's point of view. So often when you talk to government people and the criticism that we level at them, is they always uh, this categorization that is so wrong. For instance, they'll talk about SMMME. That's when you know that you're going to start having a problem right now with someone you're talking to. Because why would you want to put micro into the same category as SMEs? I mean, why would you do that? Because they are never going to have the same tools to engage in that particular sector. The micro person that's selling tomatoes and vegetables in the street corner of Ilo Street has nothing to do with what we are trying to do with SME. SME is formalized business that employs people formally who pay a proper tax, income tax, pay tax, corporate tax, indirect taxes. They are registered. They can contribute to the economy. You can go count the number of people and those are the people that we need to be supporting. So it's not happening because you don't have a lot of funding instruments for that. The DFI environment, all of it actually needs to be reviewed in its totality because the law, a lot of them are actually behaving like banks. It's very difficult to get money from the IEC. It's very difficult to get money from the TBSA. It's very difficult to get money from NEF because they behave like banks. They want you to produce own equity, to have things that are impossible to get yet they are development finance institutions. That's because they are also measured incorrectly because they are measured as banks. How many profits are you making instead of being measured on, wait a minute, even if you are making losses, you cannot sustain yourself as a DFI. Look at the 10 billion loss that you've made. But let's go and calculate the businesses that you created that have succeeded. Oh, now we realize that look at the taxes that those businesses are paid. Look at the jobs that they've actually created. It looks like the income that the government itself from the fiscals is generating from those businesses can wash the face of the losses that the DFIs are actually making. We are not having that particular discussion yet, and that's the discussion we should have, because it will unleash a lot of the support that SMEs need in particular so that they can grow those particular businesses. Until you do that, nothing is going to happen. On that note, we're going to take another quick break. We'll come back as we gravitate towards the end of the show. Two or three things that I want to you know, wrap up with you. Let's take a break. We'll come back in a second. Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world. And now it is the time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point, it is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making. This is uh, Beyond Dominance. Uh, my name is Nimrod I am joined by Alan Mukoki, who is the Chief Executive at the South African Chamber of Commerce and Industry, um, giving us an overview of some of the, you know, missing nuggets, if you like, uh, in the context of South African economic growth. Initially, the broader theme of our conversation uh, this morning has been the press, some of the issues they've raised in relation to the trip by the president to Kremlin and Kiev. And we then gravitated towards a point where we, I wanted a linkage between that particular trip in the context of the 
Africa Trade Free Trade Agreement, which has a lot of commonalities around trade, as an example, stabilization of trade, movement of goods. We then go to a point where Ellen was giving us a, a thought of some of the biggest limitations in the South African body politic, particularly from an investment point of view. Uh, his sense is that when you compare the amount of money spent uh, on social grants, that's it's a lot higher when you compare it with investment in small business development. And his view is that we do need small business as the anchor or as the labor for economic uh, prosperity. He compared that with other Asian countries such as Taiwan, Hong Kong, included that also Australia, as entities or as countries that invest substantially on SMMEs, financing and, and industrialization, as opposed to us having to spend substantially insane amount of money on social grants. Of course, we understand the context that South African unemployment is quite high, and that unemployment rate uh, has the big face in it. So I suppose the government is caught up in a very tight spot in that uh, we're trying to remedy inequality. I and mean, when you look at the Gini coefficient, South Africa is the most unequal society or country in the world. So to some extent, there is merit in government spending that kind of money. But there has to be a, a further conversation. This one I'm picking up from Ellen further conversation on how to redirect some of the funding towards capital products or towards investing in SMMEs. And one of the issues that you raised is the the funding model of SMMEs. I mean the the the, the uh institutions, state owned institutions that lends money, you know, to SMMEs operates pretty much the same way as the bank because that is why there is not much traction. And his view, I mean, one thing that I wanted to piggyback on that very point is the fact that policy terrain or policy conversations will always be hogged by those that have proximity to precedent because they've got, you know, money. They can be be given a hearing, so to speak. But here's the issue. That kind of misdiagnosis, I suppose, in terms of where we need to be investing, why is it taking so long for government to, to Piggyback on that very issue, that for us to move the economic needle, we need to have a deliberate strategies in funding small businesses, even though they don't have different voices and proximity to government. Absolutely, you know, uh, because all these things need to be reviewed in a way that is very different. I think the idea, of course, if you are sitting in any one of the DFIs and we have had measured because the, the, the measurement the measurement instruments are wrong, number one. In other words, you know, boards of directors will sit down, they will tell the CEOs of those companies that yeah, you know, you should make a profit. <laughs> so that's the first problem that you're creating, by the way, for any DFI. So if you want to sit at a, an IDC or an NEF or something like that and you say, Oh yeah, you know what? Can you look at your asset classes and typically uh, in any given bank? Right. How you measure a bank from an income statement is your income is made from the average interest that you make on average assets, which is basically your loans, your advances uh, and and whatever commitments that you've made, minus any average uh, interest cost that you must pay to people who've given you money. Because even these DFIs themselves, they've got to go into the capital markets to borrow money, by the way, to fund their own book. So that's fundamentally part of the problem of who is funding the DFIs. So you may think that the DFIs are funding 
the economy of South Africa. But it turns out that they themselves are actually borrowing money from the economy of South Africa to fund. That in itself is a fundamental problem. You shouldn't have your land bank, your IDC or your TBSA borrowing money, right? It shouldn't be happening at that particular level. Of course, they're not deposit taking and that's why they they shouldn't be deposit taking either. It's the fiscals that should be funding the development mandate properly by not saying to a DFI, go borrow money from Old Mutual or go borrow money from Sunlam or go borrow money from NetBank. The DFI to begin with, you are supposed to be there to fund from your own balance sheet, which means your own shareholder has actually funded you. And then let's then talk about how do we want to measure your success, right? So if I give you a portfolio of assets in terms of loans and advances that you've issued, and yes, 10 billion that have actually advanced, if you're a typical bank, there is absolutely no way you are going to make losses of 10%, just 10%, and survive. It's not going to happen because the 90% of loans, uh, the 9 billion, in terms of interest rate that you make or any other non-interest income that you make, will not be able to fund the 1 billion of a loss that you're actually going to make. So what do you need to then do? You need to be able to say, wait a minute, I probably, because I'm a TFI, I can even afford to lose 30% of the 10 billion, which is 3 billion. Let's now go and investigate what has happened to the 7 billion. It may well be that the 7 billion companies that have given me money, where the interest that they are paying to me is not sufficient to repay the 3 billion in this DFI. However, the 7 billion worth of companies that have given money to, the 7 billion probably maybe represents 50% of their total funding. If you look at the return on equity on the other 50%, of that 7 billion on the other side of their balance sheet, those entities that were funded, we are making X amount of money and we're making X amount of uh, uh, value chain contributions because those businesses, they are the ones that are surviving. They have created jobs in their own entities, but they've also created jobs with suppliers and, um, and, uh, and customers of their own. Look at the overall, so that's the economic value creation that we say is not being captured today in how you measure a DFI. And it's stunting the growth of the development of SMEs because you are looking at the DFI itself, whether it can survive, as I said on the two points. Number one, you are funding it incorrectly by saying it must go into the market because you took money from Old Mutual or Sunlam or Liberty or whatever the case might be. You have to pay it back. They are now also measuring you on what type of risk are you actually taking because this is not your money. It belongs to our own policy holders or it belongs to our own shareholders as own mutual or sunlight. So that's a funding model that is creating a very significant, serious problem with the ability of DFIs to be DFIs to fund that. Now you're putting 17 billion or 20 billion a month in, in, uh, in, uh, in social development instead of thinking very clearly to say, wait a minute, maybe let me put 5 billion in all the DFIs, let me get rid of all the sunlands and the old mutuals of this world out of the DFI financing model, and I'm going to recreate this particular story so that it will then unleash this huge potential for people to be able to borrow money. I'm not saying that you must lend recklessly and you must lend to projects that don't make any sense, but I'm saying that there are many, many projects that it deserve to be funded today. But they are not being funded today because the managers of those DFIs are too concerned about saving the money that belongs to Sunlam or Old Mutual because those are also their funders. And they are worried about what the AG is going to say. We're not performing. Look at the losses that we're making because we put a charter of performance that says you must stand on your own, you must wash your own face, you must actually be able to make the level of net interest income and non-interest revenue that will be able to pay not just for your expenses but for any losses potentially that you may make that should be funded by someone else because those successful 
70% of businesses may well, uh, Nimrod, be generating four or five billion rand worth of economic value indirectly into the state by way of income tax, uh, personal income taxes that they have generated, corporate income tax and indirect taxes. But we're not capturing that. Now we're killing the mm. DFI with our own model. Absolutely. Uh, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it Ellen. As always, it has been absolutely beautiful getting your sense on very complex uh, issues, but getting uh, an insight from you, it makes them relatively easier to comprehend, and I'm sure the listener and I've enjoyed your your incredible insight. Uh, first and foremost, uh, we started off by reflecting on Saki's, uh, you know, perception of Saki's view regarding the president uh, trip to, to uh, Kremlin and Kiev, and you were able to outline um, in a very fair and balanced way how you perceive that particular uh, gesture, which elevated African continent uh, in the global space. We then obviously gravitated more towards some of the shortcomings of uh, FDIs, particularly in the context of growing the economy. And there, there are a lot of insights which I think we need to probe more for there's a lot of opportunities uh, that the you know the the FDIs aren't necessarily leveraged on purely because their charter of performance, as you've indicated, is more skewed towards a private sector kind of configuration, which makes it difficult, if not impossible, uh, for them to uh, appreciate the investment in 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 SMMEs uh, that would indirectly contribute to the fiscals. So we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you very much, Alan. Thank you. Thank you, Nomura. Thank you so much. Absolutely. There were, that's Alan Mukoki, the executive at the South African Chamber of Commerce and Industry. How that I, I thoroughly enjoyed the kind of insight that he normally brings to the show. And I certainly think you also did. We're going to have to review. Uh, I'm going to try and, and get conversation more and more going around the role of um, state-funded institutions. Um, we look at the, the, the legal mandate, we look at what are the shortcomings around those legal mandates, we look at the the kind of charters which drives performance and extent to which there are limitations and what is possibly a fairer a model that would ensure that SMEs are funded in a more substantive way without obviously being reckless. Let's do this again next week. It has been absolutely beautiful. Have yourself a wonderful morning ahead. Shalom. Beyond Governance, making sense of doing business in South Africa, is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world. And now it is the time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point, it is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making.